for our reading this morning, we'll be continuing through our series on the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be reading from Luke chapter 2, the verses 21 to 40. Luke 2, the verses 21 to 40. Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament, and you'll be able to find this particular chapter and verse on page 1180 of your pew Bible. Luke 2, the verses 21 to 40. In the word of God. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his his mother, his mother being Jesus' mother, marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them, And said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was of great age and had lived with a a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, today is New Year's Eve. And for most of us, it's a time to look back in reflection on another year gone by. It's a time of mixed feelings, isn't it? Just to sit there and to think about everything that's happened this past year. We have things to remember that we've done and we're thankful about them. 
We've had many blessings granted to us by God. Maybe you began dating this year, or you had a change in job. Maybe you got engaged, or you got married, or you're expecting a child. You've got many things that we're thankful for. But we also have some regrets, don't we? We sit back and we think over the past 364 days and there are things we could have handled better. There's sins we've committed. There's time we've lost. Wasted on things that we can never get back. We've put ourselves into compromising situations. We've broken promises. We've hurt people around us. Those are things we can never take back. What's done is done. At most, we can seek to deal with the damage of some of the things we've done, but we recognize the limits of what we can do, don't we? Some things can be put back together, but there will often be scars, some of which will take much time to heal. Looking back over this year, we see blessing, but we also see brokenness. Looking back, we see our need. We see the limits of our ability to set things right. And we see a desire in our hearts for someone who can set things right. We see a desire for someone to intervene and grant us purification. We want someone who can take everything bad that we've done away. Everything to hurt man. Everything that's been rebellious against God. And we want to be made whole again. And we want those we've affected as well to be made whole again. Today we'll see a couple that's doing just that. They're looking for purification. Perhaps they themselves didn't grasp the full meaning of what they were doing at this point in time, but that's the beauty of us having a gospel view of history, isn't it? God grants us his perspective in Scripture, to see the richness of his work going far beyond what those who are actually involved in it can fathom. Today we'll see that in the journey of Mary and Joseph to Jerusalem. And we'll do this under the following theme, going to God for purification. We'll see first of all clean and unclean, and second, a remedy of grace, and third, the bearer of that grace. So what brings Joseph and Mary to Jerusalem in our passage today? You'll notice as we enter our passage that it doesn't specifically speak about Mary, first and foremost. In fact, we read in verse 27, we read there, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms. That makes it sound like they're there for Jesus, doesn't it? And there's a good reason for that. Jesus was one of the reasons that they had come. As we read here, God had declared to the people of Israel that every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So that was one of the things they were coming to deal with. Every firstborn male was dedicated to the Lord when they were born. They belonged to the Lord. God had said in Numbers 3, verse 13, all the firstborn are mine. 
On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn of Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Going to the temple for Joseph and Mary and presenting their son to the Lord recognized that God had a claim on that firstborn child. And he had a claim on that child in a special way. Now, most of you know that the Lord had Levites serving in his temple full time. And so he didn't need more firstborn sons serving him. Because of that, God had introduced another law. He had the people bring their firstborn sons and he had them ransom them. He allowed them to make a payment, a ransom of their firstborn. The firstborn sons had to be redeemed from priestly service by a payment of five shekels to someone of a priestly family. So Joseph and Mary were doing something that any pious family would do when they went to Jerusalem to pay this ransom for their son. But they could have paid any priestly family. They didn't need to go to Jerusalem for that. So why were they going to the temple? To answer that question, we need to look a little bit deeper into our passage. Let's, let's take a step back and then go deeper. Beloved, have you ever taken the time to glance through the Old Testament laws on clean and unclean in Leviticus and Deuteronomy? This does connect. The author, A.J. Jacobs, took a year to follow all of the Old Testament laws as literally as possible. He writes about that experience in this book, in his book, The Year of Living Biblically. Now, I can't recommend this book as I haven't read it myself, but the conclusions that he drew in interviews after the fact were interesting. He spoke about the mindfulness that you get with regards to every aspect of your life, because it does touch down on every aspect of your life. He writes, my wife is a saint. She put up with a lot. My beard alone, she wouldn't kiss me for the last two months of the project. Plus, at one point, I built a biblical hut in our living room, and she didn't appreciate the construction project in our apartment. Obedience to what God had written in the Old Testament dominated his every waking hour. Now, what's the point of this? Why do I bring up this one man's experiment with the laws of God, the Old Testament laws of God? Well, over the course of his time, when he was immersed in these laws, when he was working his way through these laws and applying them to every aspect of his life, he had to spend time in them, meditating on them, memorizing them, just to make sure he wouldn't accidentally break one of them that he wouldn't cross a boundary. And in this time, as he was going through it, he came to recognize that becoming, clean, becoming unclean was inevitable. One day or another, he noted, you're going to slip up. You're going to get lax. You sit where you shouldn't. You touch someone who's touched someone who's touched something that's unclean. Becoming unclean was inevitable. And to a certain point, this was the very point. But to a certain extent, this was the very point of the Old Testament laws. 
As we read in Romans 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh will be declared righteous in God's sight. For by the law comes knowledge of sin. The point of the law is not to provide us with a guideline that we can perfectly follow. The point of the law is to illuminate areas of our lives where we fall short. That's one of the points of the law. The point of the law is to highlight the contagious and the damaging effects of sin. Just as in the Old Testament, they inevitably became unclean. They needed to go to Jerusalem time and again for cleansing, for seeking purity. The point of the law for us today is to drive us away from self-reliance and to drive us to the only one who can make us pure. Does this mean that we can continue in sin? No. But it means that the more our sin increases, the more we're convicted by our knowledge of it, and the more the one who is a Christian flees to Christ. Do you follow that? The more our sin increases, the more we're convicted by our knowledge of it, and the more we need to flee to Christ, leaving that sin behind, not becoming settled in it. In our passage, we read about Joseph and Mary and Jesus' trip to the temple. Now, when you first glance at this chapter, you may have thought that uh, this trip was for the payment of the ransom of the firstborn, or maybe it was for the circumcision of Christ that we find in the very first verse that we read today. Many Bible translations put the heading of that section right above verse 21 and tie it into the following section. Now we saw it wasn't necessary for them to go to Jerusalem for the payment of ransom of the firstborn. But what about circumcision? Would that be a reason that they went to the temple? Well, the circumcision of Christ happened within eight days in accordance with the Jewish law. What Luke is referring to in verse 22 is something completely different. There we read, Now when the days of her purification according to the laws of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. You'll find that the ESV and NIV have the days of their purification, noting that it wasn't just Mary who needed to be, come to be purified, it was more of them. Now, the likely reason for this need for purification would have been that there was no one to catch the baby who was born other than Joseph. And as this was the case, he would have come into contact with Mary's bodily fluids, which made her unclean and would have himself become unclean. Uncleanness, you'll remember, is contagious. It's a reminder to us from God that our sin doesn't just affect us. When we sin... And especially when we continue in sin. Our sin affects those who are around us. And the damaging effects and the need for purification extend to those who are around us as well. Now, coming back from that brief aside, Mary needed to travel to Jerusalem for purification. The reason for this can be found in Leviticus 12. Let's open up to that for a moment. Leviticus 12. You'll be able to find that on page 123, uh, 2, 122. No, nope, 123. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So that's what happened already earlier in our passage. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. So this was a reminder that when you're bearing a child, you're bringing another sinful human being into the world. And then in verse 6 we read, when, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest the lamb of the first year, a one-year-old lamb, as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. Now, it speaks to Joseph and Mary's poverty that we, we read in, that we read in verse 8 of Leviticus 12. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. In our passage, we realize that's exactly what she offered, what they offered. They couldn't afford to sacrifice a lamb and so they gave what they could. So what's, what's the importance of all of this? The picture that we receive here, brothers and sisters, is twofold. First, it's a picture of what happens even from the time of our infancy. You might see it as something that's backwards. To our progressive Western sensibilities, you, you may scoff at the fact that those ancient Hebrews thought childbirth was something that was icky, that a natural process required spiritual cleansing. How backwards is that? But then you'd be missing the point. God teaches his people by this picture that they are sinful from childhood. They are sinful from the time that they are conceived. The psalmist says, children do not come into this world untouched. Their very entry into the world is an event that's tainted with sin. As we read in Psalm 51 verse 5, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's a sad picture, isn't it? But look at how strongly that's contrasted with the beautiful picture of the remedy that God gives his people for their uncleanness. He doesn't leave his people at odds with him. He doesn't leave his people alone. He gives them a way in which they can stand right with him again. A way that even the poorest of them can afford. For those who are sincere in their desire to please God, God has already bridged the gap. He doesn't need to. He didn't need to. But he does. Brother, sister, do you have something that weighs you down? Do you have a sin, a shortcoming, or a pattern of sinful behavior that you struggle with in your life? There's the remedy of grace for that. God has bridged the gap. But this time, he hasn't just given 
Joseph and Mary the remedy of grace through the payment of the sacrifice. And we'll see more of that in a moment. This time, he hasn't given us the remedy of grace just through a payment of a sacrifice. This time, God has bridged the gap with the sacrifice of his son and followed that up in the lives of his people with the work of his spirit. He gives us his spirit to fight zealously against sin. He gives us his spirit that we can learn not to secretly love our sin, not to secretly harbor our sin, though we tell everyone else around it that we hate it and we've almost convinced ourselves that we really do, even though we don't. He gives us his spirit so that when we walk by his spirit, we can be truly free of our sin, of that struggle that we face. We read in Galatians 5 verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. God freely gives His Spirit to each and every one who comes to Jesus Christ in faith. Jesus Christ bought this for us. This is the result of the remedy of grace that God gives us. Because if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the sinful desires of the flesh. It's impossible to gratify these desires because they are opposed to each other. Ever try actively sinning while actively praying to God? You'll see what's meant. You can't come before the throne of grace and hold on to your sin at the same time. In Christ, we find the remedy of grace. In Christ, we find our initial purification, our initial righteousness before God through His sacrifice. And following that, He sends His Spirit. And in His Spirit, we find sanctification. We find ongoing purifying in our lives. That's the beauty of the remedy of grace that God offers us in the gospel. Just as with the offer of the birds by Joseph and Mary, God's remedy of grace is an acknowledgement of the sin that infects every aspect of our lives. It's necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to come. But it's also a promise for those who seek Him that if we do come to Him, He has taken His first step already with His remedy of grace, which is freely offered to us. And it's at this point when Joseph and Mary are coming to God for the freely offered remedy of grace, that God ratchets it up another level for them. He does something truly wonderful for them. He opens their eyes to the bearer of grace. We read in Hebrews 9 that the ceremonies for purification that we read about, along with all the other ceremonies and sacrifices, are pictures of something greater. We also read that they cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. They were meant to direct the eyes of the people of God beyond the simple act of sacrifice itself to the heart of what was being pictured. That sin required the payment of life that they themselves could not meet. They needed to find their purification through something else. They needed to find their purification in someone else. And that someone was Jesus Christ. And so God speaks to Joseph and to Mary and to us 
through two people, Simeon, a man described as just and devout. Luke's reference to someone who's pious and faithful to God's law, devout, loving God with all his heart and just, exercising love for his neighbor. He had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. This was a reference to the comfort that would be brought in when the Messianic age came to pass. You see, the Israelites were all waiting for the Messianic age to come. They knew from passages like Isaiah 40, verse 1 to 2, that their time in exile, their time under oppression, would be relieved by this Messiah. We read there, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. We also read in Isaiah 61, the verses 1 and 2, The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn and to console those who mourn in Zion. But the Israelites, for the most part, weren't looking at this according to the perspective that Simeon and Anna were looking. They were, for the most part, waiting for a Messiah who would give them a physical deliverance. They already had a taste of what that physical deliverance might have looked like when the Maccabees revolted from Greek rule and established a kingdom in 140 BC that lasted until they were conquered by the Romans only a few decades before, in 37 BC. So among the oldest of them, they would have remembered a time, at the time of the birth of Jesus, a time when they are under Jewish rule, when they are under Maccabean rule. They remember that. They had had a taste of that. But that wasn't the kind of deliverance that the Lord was promising them. The Lord was promising them something much richer. He was promising them not just a bearer of legal independence. He was promising them a bearer of grace. And in this moment, the Spirit revealed to Simeon that this bearer of grace, this one who would bring the true remedy for their sorrows, this one who would take away their sin, this great divide between them and God, he had now arrived in the flesh. God had revealed to him by his Holy Spirit that this baby boy, who was named Jesus, was the consolation of Israel. He was the one who would result in the pardoning of her iniquity, who would heal her brokenhearted, who would proclaim liberty to those who were held captive by sin, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Anna as well, an 84-year-old, highly respected prophetess, came in that instant and gave thanks to the Lord, speaking to all who were around who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Both of these Israelites, Simeon and Anna, were filled with the Holy Spirit. And both of them came to the same conclusion that this baby named Jesus was everything that was wrapped up in the name of Jesus. The name that we're reminded in verse 21, the angel gave to him before he was conceived. He was the redemption of Israel. He was the living embodiment of what his name meant. The Lord saves. That's what Jesus means. The Lord saves. 
through this child would come salvation for the world. Being saved from the punishment of our wrongs that were due and saved for a world of peace with him. Joseph and Mary were bringing a sacrifice of blood for their purification. But this baby that they brought along with them, this baby that they brought along with them would bring an eternal sacrifice, one that paid for everything in full. That is the sacrifice that their child's name pointed to that was once again confirmed before their very eyes. Simeon understood this. Anna understood this. Joseph and Mary were beginning to understand this. Do you understand this? I don't just mean, do you know what his name means, but have you fully grasped what this means for you? We read in Hebrews 9, verse 13 and following, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of flesh, if that's the case already in the Old Testament, that these things that they could bring to the temple could sanctify for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Beloved, Christ is your only Savior. His payment is sufficient. Think back to this past year. Think back to this past year. No matter how heavy your burden from this past year was, you can leave it at the foot of the cross. The whole year, all of the burdens, all of the sins, all of your sorrows, wrapped up into one package and left at the foot of the cross. When you come near to him in true repentance and faith, you can leave everything at the foot of the cross. And he will bear it for you because he loves you. Belgian Confession, Article 26, says it beautifully. We believe that we have no access to God except through the only mediator and advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. For this purpose, he became man uniting together the divine and human nature that we might not be barred from, but have access to the divine majesty. This mediator, however, whom the Father has ordained between himself and us, should not frighten us by his greatness so that we look for another according to our fancy. There is no creature in heaven or on earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ. In Christ, you are pure. You are holy. You are truly God's beloved. Beloved, will you leave your old ways, your sins, your shame, your guilt, your pain, your fears, your hurt and your tears at the foot of the cross? All of that from this past year, will you leave it at the foot of the cross? Join us, beloved. 
Join us. Join God's beloved as we enter a new year with a clean slate, wiped clean by our Savior and our King, by our Lord Jesus. Amen.